Genesis chapter 2 in your Bibles. As we continue our series that we began early in the summer on foundations, and a lot of the reason for that is our young people being in here all summer, how desperately they need, but we all need to be reminded of this. Now, I was thinking earlier in the week that virtually every child-rearing book that's come down the pack, the, the pike in the last 30 years, basically, including most Christian child-rearing books, are, um, are garbage. And the reason they're garbage is because they don't go back to the foundation and what the Bible really says about what we're going to study tonight in part. And it's just everything, everything that we hold and that we believe must go back to the very foundations in the beginnings. Genesis 2, you'll notice again verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Work and labor is an honorable thing. This is before the fall. Work is not a result of sin. The sweat of the brow is, but work and labor is not. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your people and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just need to be reminded and taught instructed in the way of truth and I thank you for your word tonight as we look at it that our minds can be corrected encouraged um, according to your will and your mind teach us now in Jesus name amen now several times already in this series we've noted this obvious idea that the foundation of what we believe what we trust what we really hold precious as Christians is found here at the very beginning of all of scripture and of course, one perfect illustration of that is here with this tree. It is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, one of the basic questions of man, one of the great mysteries that philosophers and ethicists and theologians and politicians have wrestled with and continue to, and will always do so, is the question of right and wrong. Who's to say that this is right? Really? Who's to say that that is wrong? Who's to say that there is a right or a wrong? Well, we're finally seeing now in real time right in front of our eyeballs the fruit of decades of anti-God situation ethics brainwashing. This very destructive bitter fruit of pretending that there is no standard. There's no absolute standard of what is right and what is wrong. Just as Isaiah prophesied Hundreds of years ago, our leaders are calling what is good, evil. And they are calling that which is evil, good, even a virtue. For an entire month now, there's two days left, elitists in our country have forced on our society something that is called Pride Month. I want you to ponder that for a moment. The symbol of Pride Month, Pride Month, is where they have stolen God's sign of his mercy. Remember, this was his rainbow. That's what God called it in Genesis. He said, I have placed my bow, my bow in the sky. And he did so as a reminder of his mercy. Well, mercy for what? Mercy for sinners. Mercy from more of the same judgment. Mercy because man, after that great judgment, Noah and his family humbled himself. But do you notice what has happened with that? That very symbol of mercy and humility 
has been thrown back into God's face as a symbol of pride. You do know that pride is the singular great sin in the Bible. Why would anybody want to call anything pride this or that? And it's been thrown back into God's face as a symbol of pride and the very sin that that caused the judgment in the first place. And yes, sure enough, all of this rebellion goes right back to the beginning, to God's word on this matter of marriage, this whole matter of gender and the home and parenting. Chapter 2, verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. By the way, what Adam would have noticed, if you think about the scene here and what's going on, he's all alone. And God is making all these creatures and he's bringing them to Adam. And what he would have noticed right away is that unlike himself, every other creature on earth has a mate. The fowl of the air were lovebirds. And the tiger had a tigress. And you could go on and on. And of course, God knew this all in advance. Back in verse 18, before the animals were created, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Moody once said that God created the plants and the seas, and it was good. God created the sun and the moon and the stars, and it says, God says, it was good. God created the creatures of the sea, and it was good. God then created the beasts of the earth, and it was good. And when he was done, the Bible says that God said it was what? Very good. But then, we just read it, verse 18, God created Adam, and it was not good. It was not good that man should be alone. God anticipated this need, and then he apparently awakened this need by having Adam observe and name all of the creatures. God awakened Adam to an awareness that even in this fellowship with God, he needed someone like himself. And so Adam was impressed that Eve came from him as you read later in the text. A little girl came home from Sunday school, and Dad said, what'd you learn? She said, I learned that God made Adam and God made Eve, and I learned how God created Eve. She didn't get the story quite right. She said that God put Adam to sleep and took out all of his brains, so he had none, and he made a woman. That sounds like a woman's version to me. (laughs) But he did, in fact, make Eve from Adam. It is a reminder that they really were one flesh. Of course, Sounds like the ice cream truck back in the Heights, whose ever phone that is. It's making me hungry, so please turn it off. Adam and Eve had. Thank you. Adam and Eve had this great, this great oneness, if you will. And by seeing and naming the animals, God uh, stirred up in Adam this awareness, if you will. He hungered for human companionship. And then in God's time and in God's own way, he met Adam's hunger and he created Eve. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. 
It's a beautiful scene, and you'll notice, young people, that Adam is not running around frantically all over the garden looking for a helpmeet. Adam is not seen sulking under a tree, feeling sorry for himself and demanding someone right now. He's not rebelling because his desire for a companion is not instantly gratified. What actually happened is Adam went to sleep in the will of God, and in as far as that whole area of life is concerned, he quietly left matters into God's hands, and the Creator, in his time and in his way, provided Adam's mate. And then Adam opened his eyes, gazed into the face of the only woman for him, and then he spoke his vow, verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Interesting, right? Even at the very, very beginning, the home is established with a father and a mother. That's a man and a woman. And it says, he shall cleave unto his wife. Same pattern, and they shall be one flesh. And then verse 25 says, he and his wife, the man and his wife were not ashamed. But then comes the most important foundational truth, foundational development, if you will, in all of Scripture. You cannot miss this. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, folks, hear this carefully. Genesis 3 is such an important and foundational, crucial text in the Word of God that it would be impossible for me to overemphasize or overstate its place in our lives, its place in the Word of God. Already we have noted that with two things, two very specific things in this universe, that is, with creation itself, where did everything come from? And with marriage, as we're looking at now, with those two things, this here, right here in the Bible, gives us the foundation and the truth of all of it. And that's why, that's the real reason why, and the only reason why, both of those are relentlessly attacked in our society to this very moment. Beloved, it is no accident that in the courts, that in academia, that in media, in art, from Harvard to Hollywood to Nashville to our nation's capital, it is not a coincidence that by means of evolution, which our young people are brainwashed with from the time they're infants nearly, and through so-called alternate lifestyles, progressivism, and downright perversion, what is under assault are God's designs in the foundations of this book about two things, creation and marriage. That's why I'm not a bit surprised then to notice in Genesis 3 the third great assault, or better put, perhaps, the third foundational truth also assaulted by Satan. That, of course, concerns the nature of man. You see, humanism teaches that man is on his way up, that basically man is and has been increasing because that's evolution. Things are evolving better and better. And so man's getting better in his evolution so that now he's better than he was before. No surprise, no surprise. That is the opposite of the truth. The truth is man used to be up. Adam was basically perfect. But he's 
since suffered a fall. Because of Adam's sin, he, he had a devastating fall so that now as man is not basically good, he is basically bad. Let me say that again. Mankind is not inherently good. He is inherently bad. Almost, I mentioned child-rearing books. Almost all of them based on the supposition that that little baby is an angel and he's an empty slate. And that little angel will continue being an angel because you write on that empty slate. He is not an empty slate. He's a fallen sinner. Man is not basically good. Created in the image of God, man has since been disoriented by sin. And that is the reason a child has to be taught. Has to be taught to be good. A child needs instruction, persistent guidance and discipline. You have to teach a child to say thank you. What do you say? What do you say? What do you, is it that hard? It's hard if you're a sinner. Thank you. You have to teach a child to play nicely, to not take toys that belong to someone else. And of course, folks, this is essentially the opposite of what modern psychology says, largely as a result that all modern psychology is built upon a theory called evolution. The Bible, however, confronts us with the truth. It is the truth of man's fall here at the very beginning and then God keeps it before our face all the way through the pages of Scripture until it ends in the book of Revelation where man is left to himself and you really find out what the nature of man is like in the book of Revelation. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. It is impossible. It is impossible to understand your role as a mother, as a father, as a grandparent, as a Christian, as a church member, as a citizen of any country. It is impossible to understand human nature until and unless you believe and understand the most basic law of that human nature. And that law is the law of sin. Just as we have said all along regarding marriage, and you'll see more of that in the days to come, as we've said all along concerning creation and why trees are good for food and all of that in our first two lessons, the law of sin, this law, this Truth in the Word of God and in the Bible alone gives the only answer in all of the universe as to how it ever happened and why it happened. You see, Pastor, if that's true, if Adam fell and mankind fell with him, then doesn't that support the evolutionist notion that we're a lot closer to the animals, that, you know, there's not much difference between a man and a chimpanzee because we're 98.9% same in DNA, and so it goes. But actually, and this is important, vital in fact, their absolute reverse is true. I'm going to illustrate that with an article I read showing just how unmoored and unhinged our society has become. Bear in mind that these are the smart people. Bear in mind that these are the ones who are in charge, that these are the ones who are teaching your young people. The article is about the, new, the evils of so-called speciesism. Let me read it to you. Whenever you see a parrot in a cage, goldfish in a tank, or dog on a chain, you are seeing speciesism, like racism, speciesism. If you believe that a turtle or a wasp has less right to life and liberty than a fox or human, or you consider humans superior to other animals, you subscribe to speciesism. If you visit aqua prisons, what's an aqua prison? It's Tampa over there, you know, the aquarium. 
If you visit aqua prisons and zoos, wear cow skin and sheep hair, or eat flesh or eggs or cow milk products, you practice speciesism. Speciesism bias against, is biased against all non-humans. Now look, I'm not going to go back to our, the biblical injunctions a couple weeks ago we noticed in the Bible concerning cruelty to animals and how God's law is the first main law in all of humanity to protect animals. No Christian ever has to apologize for the high standard of stewardship in, in Scripture. Christians are not cruel to animals. Pagans are cruel to animals. But if you were Satan and you wanted to attack the foundation of creation and Scripture, one starting point, along with marriage, and creation. One starting point would be the distinction that God makes, that God Himself makes in the foundation here between humans and animals. You see, there's been this movement in the world, and it's alluded to in this, in this article I'm going to read in a moment, that includes animal rights being ex- extended. And specifically right now, they just want to extend it to nine specific species of animals that would afford these animals the same rights as humans. That's just the beginning. For example, one of the nine is the African gray parrot. Because it can identify shapes and colors, because it can spell, it should have the same protection of humans, meaning if you kill one, you've committed murder. Not animal abuse, murder. If you steal one, it's kidnapping under the law. If you threaten it, you African parrot, I don't know. It's assault. One of the champions of this cause is a law professor. Not a biologist, a law professor. He's very famous. His name's Stephen Wise. And if you don't think he's, he and thousands and thousands of other wealthy uh, adherents of his are serious about this, think again. Let me read you this. Please, please be patient. Full personhood would give non-humans all relevant legal rights, such as right to life. Like all other non-human rights, a non-human right to life would constrain human, not non-human behavior. Under non-speciesist law, it would be illegal for a human to intentionally kill a non-human, an animal, okay, except under extraordinary circumstances. If you were stranded in a frozen wasteland or famine-stricken area or devoid of plant food and you faced imminent starvation, you'd be entitled to get an animal for food. If a lion were leaping at your throat, and this is nice of them, you're entitled to defend yourself and so on. In contrast, it would be illegal to kill mice for experimental data, cattle for their flesh, fishes for sport, minks for their pelts, spiders out of aversion. In other words, ladies, you have a spider in your house? Just because it scares you, you can't kill that thing. He has a right to live. In other words, there's no difference between humans and non-humans, animals. This makes zero sense. It makes zero sense to anyone who has any sense, except it's a movement, it's growing, it's actually huge, and the reason is because there is a spiritual dimension to this movement. This is a direct assault upon God. Almost all modern animal rights are an assault upon God. You know why? Because God says differently. God says that man has dominion. He tells Noah, go out and eat the fish, eat the meat. And beyond that, God became a man. When God came to this earth and became a man, what did he do? 
Jesus, he ate lamb. He caught fish and then he cooked the fish for the disciples. The Bible tells us that Jesus ate the honey. So what is Jesus now? A thief. He's a murderer. He's not sinless. Let me read one more part of this article real quick. Non-species law would also accord non-humans a right to property. They would own the products of their bodies and labors. Oysters would own the pearls they create. Ladies, thieves. Robins, the eggs they lay, honeybee colonies, honey they produce. Non-humans would own their nests, burrows, hives, a dam built by a family of beavers would belong to those beavers and their descendants. It would be illegal for humans to take, intentionally damage, or intentionally destroy anything that non-animals produce within their natural habitats. Further, non-humans would own their habitats. All animals living in a particular area, land, or water would have a legal right to that environment, which would be their communal property. Land currently inhabited by non-humans, animals, and humans could remain cohabited, but humans wouldn't be permitted to encroach further into animal territory, for instance, by building more houses, and so on, and so it goes. And then finally, speciesism is the most deeply entrenched, harmful form of injustice in the world today. It's unjust for you to do what God told you to do. Enjoy the fruits of your labors. Replenish, go out and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. Civil rights, rights that are guaranteed under our Constitution, for example, they're saying should be extended to honeybees because they have complex languages. To dolphins especially because, you know, they can learn gestures. Not the Miami Dolphins. They can't learn any kind of signals if you've noticed the past few years. So then does the fall of man, let's go back to what we alluded to, does the fall of man in Genesis 3 add credence to the idea that men and dolphins are closer in relationship? No, beloved, it does the exact opposite precisely because of what the fall meant for man as opposed to animals. It means that man is under the law of sin. I'll put it this way. This law professor and all of his friends are calling for basic legal rights to be extended eventually to animals. Basically all animals. However, you read the article. I've read it. It's actually a journal. Read all of the material and notice what they're not calling for. They're not calling for any of these animals to be held accountable themselves. If a dog gets in a fight with another dog and rips his throat out, are you going to try the dog for murder? When a honeybee eats its own, as they, as they obviously do, are going to be tried in a court of law for cannibalism? When an African elephant squishes a chimpanzee between its toes, is the elephant indicted? You see, if these species are really so close to humans, where is their legal system? Where is their morality? Where is the guilt, the remorse? Where's the outrage when an elephant takes a baby orangutan in its trunk and throws it across the jungle? There's no outrage except from a human. From a human who's recording it with his camera. Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent was more subtle. The word subtle, by the way, means wise. And Yes, this being was more than a match for Eve in this temptation. Eve would never have a chance 
against the serpent, against Satan's subtlety, except for one thing. What is it? She had the word of God. As brief as God's word was, with simply that alone, with that alone and her faith in that as her guide, she was more than a match for the serpent. All she had to do was respond to any attack from Satan by saying, Thus saith the Lord. So what happened? Now follow this. The subtle serpent began by giving a threefold attack on the word of God. Look, Lucifer knows what he has to do first to get the hearts of these young people right here. And the first thing he has to do is attack this book. Attack the Word of God. He does it, number one, through doubt. Number two, you'll notice, through denial. And then number three, delusion. Look at verse one. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. In other words, how do you know? Yea, did God say this? How do you know that God said it? How do you know, Eve? After all, you weren't there. And she wasn't. You're taking the word of a man. How do you know? And of course, that was just to plant the seed of doubt in her mind. And it's specifically, again, the doubt of the authorship of God's word. Has God said this? Now God is going to plant seeds of doubt regarding the accuracy of God's word. Verse 1 again. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Wait a minute. Every tree? Are you sure, Eve, that's an accurate rending of God's original words? How can you know? So that he's casting doubt now on the authorship and the accuracy of the word of God. And then in sort of a master stroke of deception, he cast doubt on its acceptability for her. In other words... Even if it is true, even if it's accurate, Eve, who says you have to accept it? Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. In other words, Satan directed Eve's gaze to the pleasures and the profits of that forbidden tree. Why, Eve, it's good for food. Eve, it's pleasant to the eyes. And Eve, it's able to make you wise. It's just unacceptable that you can't have it. You want it, you should have it. First the doubt, then you'll notice the denial. Go back to verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Well, the whole issue of temptation has come now to a question of belief. Who are you going to believe, Eve? God said you shall surely die. I'm telling you, you will not surely die. And by the way, you notice how in a small way Eve was careless with God's word and made it seem, young people, hear this very carefully because this is what, this is what the devil will do to you in your minds. I'm not allowed to do anything. I have to always Eve takes God's word and makes it more grievous and more restricting, restricting than it ever was. Look at verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it. Now watch this. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? Don't even touch it. Satan, who's cast doubt, who has denied, is now going to send the delusion. Verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing, the Hebrew word there literally, deciding good and evil. The word gods here is the Hebrew word Elohim. Satan is putting into E's mind the exact same prideful thought he once had as Lucifer up in heaven in his own mind. I can be as God, as the Most High. I can do it. He's putting into her heart what was already in his heart. He deluded her into believing that she could be as Elohim himself. It was humanism. So by acting independently of Adam, you'll notice Satan did not go to Adam first. By usurping his authority, Eve could now easily usurp God's authority. And here's what happened. Follow this carefully. You remember the Bible says in 1 John 2.16, All that is in the world. He's about to sum up everything in the world that Satan uses. All that is in the world. We talk about worldliness. What is worldliness? All that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the sight. The pride of life, it is able to make you as a god. That threefold temptation came to Eve and simply Only because she didn't believe the word of God. Only because she did not believe what God said, she fell. And how does this prove that we are different from animals? Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened And they knew, they got knowledge, all right, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Let me ask you a question. Why didn't the animals do that after the flood, after the fall? Why don't the animals now provide clothes for themselves? Why don't animals have a sense of shame when it comes to reproduction? There's no conscience, no morality. Only human beings flush, blush, Only humans try to cover their sins and save themselves with a religion of works and no blood. They knew that they were compromised. They knew it. And you know, let's take inventory. Satan said that she wouldn't die. God said that she would die. With all of the guilt and the shame and the sorrow, the centuries behind us, And with a million, billion graves on this earth, one anthropologist said the earth is basically one giant cemetery. With all of the death all over the world, what does the testimony show? Who was the real liar? There's an interesting thing that Eve does with the Word of God, and I want to parenthetically present this to you tonight. Because it essentially caused the whole tragedy. Go back to verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not touch it, neither shall ye, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now here, this is her version of the word of God. 
You'll notice the subtle changes. She added to God's word once. She subtracts from God's word twice. What did God say? Of every tree, here's what God said, of every tree thou mayest freely eat. That's generous. That's grace. All of it. Who knows how many trees? Billions? Of every tree thou mayest freely eat. Eve left out both of those words. She left out both of those superlatives and sort of glibly said in her own little paraphrase that robbed it of all of its force and all of its blessing. And then she sanitized the penalty. She said, ye shall, instead of ye shall surely die, she revised it to lest you die. Maybe I'll die. And then she maximized the restriction by saying, neither shall ye touch it. In other words, the paraphrase of God's word minimized the goodness of God, maximized the restrictions of God, and sanitized the penalty for sin. Don't mess with the word of God. And beloved, it does matter what you do with this book. You think about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan said, command the stones to be made bread, lust of the flesh. And then he said, look upon all the kingdoms of the world. Look at it, lust of the eyes. And then he said, cast yourself down, and these people, these nations will worship you, the pride of life. All three of them were thrown at Jesus in that temptation. And what did Jesus do with all three of them every single time? The same answer, it is written. It is written. It is written. He didn't argue with the devil. He didn't change He simply said, this is what the Bible says. Satan hates the Word of God. And Satan hates the foundations of the Word of God, perhaps more than anything. Look at verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Think about that for a moment. God knew where Adam was. He wanted Adam to know where he was. And immediately, it's beautiful because in love and in mercy, God seeks for his fallen creation with one question, where art thou? God demonstrates then the very thing that Satan caused Eve to doubt. That is the goodness and the kindness and the love of God. It also shows where man was. Where art thou? I'll tell you where he was. He was lost. Remo shared with me an interesting graphic this week, a couple days ago, the list of the names in the Titanic. And when they left port there from Europe, all of those names were categorized by rank, wealth, and fame, and position. Some in luxury cabins and others down in the steerage and so on. However, some hours later when they posted the list in the Cunard office in New York City, There were only two categories and only two columns, saved and lost. That's why when we hear about someone who's dying, a loved one, or who has passed away, Pastor, pray for my uncle. He has three days to live. What's our first question? Is he saved or is he lost? We don't do that with animals. Pray for my cat mittens. He's going to die. Is he saved? He's a cat, so he's lost. We know that for sure. (laughs) Of course there's a distinction. Verse 7, again, And the eyes of them both were opened. Adam knows something's different with Eve. 
He also knows that that difference will likely separate him from her. He doesn't want that. She certainly didn't want his light to remind her of her own darkness at this point. The Bible tells us in Psalms and in the book of Mark that Jesus was clothed with light. And I believe that they were clothed with light until they fell. They fall and then God in his goodness sought them out. And then God gives a man a promise. Here at the beginning, here at the outset, we're going to look at this in the weeks ahead. He gives them a promise and a prophecy. You all know, most of you know, the fancy theological term in verse 15 is the proto-evangelium. Proto-first evangelium gospel. The first gospel. Really, Pastor? In the very beginning, God gives a gospel? Verse 15, we're going to close. And I will put him in between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall, he's talking about the devil. Her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now follow this carefully. A promise way in the beginning from the seed of a woman. The woman doesn't have the seed, so it would have to be a virgin birth. From the seed of a woman would come the Savior of fallen man. As soon as man has fallen, a promise of a Savior is given. And there is so much, so much deep, glorious truth to be learned from this. But for tonight, let me say this. Let us say this. I thank God that one day, a 12-year-old boy, Jimmy Blaylock, the Holy Spirit said, where art thou? And he saved my soul, and he gave me his Holy Spirit and his eternal word. And all he has said to me since that time is just believe this. Study it, read it, learn it, and believe all of it. In fact, meditate on his word, and you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You'll bring forth fruit in due season, and you will not wither, and whatsoever you do will prosper. The only other option to that is to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and the ungodly are all around us. I was angry and also heartbroken when I saw videos of this past weekend in the parades of these perverted men taking off their clothes and lining these parades in these streets in our major cities. And on the curbs are sitting little children, lots and lots of little children. Behind them, their parents. Child abuse by those parents. Heartbroken broken that, that these parents, instead of protecting their children from the counsel of the ungodly, are shoving them, shoving them into that very thing that will destroy them. For us, All we have to do is remember that God's word is true, that God's word never changes, that God's word is perfect, that our delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law we'll meditate day and night. God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we just, we just again come to you and ask you to help us to recognize that in a society that's becoming more like Sodom, that's becoming more like Babylon, more like ancient Rome. And even according to the, to the promises and prophecies of the last days, help us, Father, to recognize that there has always been a remnant of people who trust your word no matter what. Thank you for those of us in this room who remember when we sort of heard you say, where art thou? And we knew we were lost. And you saved us. And I thank you, Lord, that that salvation continues through a life of sanctification. Sanctify us, sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.